Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. I'll warn you, it's 6.30 in the morning. It's been a really busy week. I'm exhausted this morning, so I'm going to keep the intro really quick. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Tell a friend, share on social media. Please don't forget we're on social media at Facebook and Hockey History. And on Twitter, at Snapshots In. We've got part two of our interview with Darren Kimball coming up. Darren was an awesome, awesome guest, I'm sure, as you guys heard in part one. During part one, we kind of just talked about his trip through the minors, coming up in the system, his thoughts on the coaching staff, as well as hanging out with Guy Lafleur, which was kind of cool, having some maple syrup with him. And when I heard that, I thought that was kind of weird. I'm like, did they just eat maple syrup straight? I don't know. Must be one of those Canadian things that, as an American, I just don't get. But uh, I do like maple syrup, so I'm not against it. In part two, we really dig into the meat of the regular season, playing with the Quebec Nordiques, getting in several fights. If you're a fight fan, this is definitely the podcast for you. He talks about fighting Dennis Vial, Nick Kiprios, Bob Probert, several people. We also discuss his trade where he was sent down to St. Louis Blues. And this Blues team in the early 90s, God, I didn't realize how stacked they were when you look at this roster. And of course, at the top of the roster was Brett Hall and Adam Oates, was one of the best one-two combinations in hockey. Not only at the time, but I think of all time, really. So we talk a lot about that. Before we get to the interview, though, it looks like we need to welcome a new NHL team. Seattle was awarded the 32nd franchise in the NHL, so congratulations to them. Looks like they'll start playing in a few years. It was only $650 million. And then I think I read that they're doing like another half million at least uh, in renovations to Key Arena. I think it was actually a lot more than that. So they're spending pretty much over a billion dollars, you know. Not a big thing. Congrats to them. I think the NHL will do really well in Seattle. It kind of gives them a new uh, a new footprint in the Northwest. And congratulations to Cliff Fletcher on being named the new GM of the Philadelphia Flyers. If there's anything we can learn from this, it's don't listen to any of my predictions. Just come by for the interviews. Don't listen to my NHL predictions. On that note, let's go ahead and cut to part two of our interview with Darren Kimball. That same game, though, against the Toronto Maple Leafs, you end up getting involved in the action the way you do, and you end up fighting John Cordick. For newer fans who might not know who John Cordick is, how would you describe him? I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of probably, I know I, I don't get into some of the stuff that he gets into, but uh, I think the mentality, he was, a, he was a player that come up through Montreal. He was tough as nails back in the day. He fought, you know, him and Jay Miller, their fights are, are unbelievable the way they used to fight. So his reputation was, you know, when I get to the National Hockey League, he's one of the top. He's he's one of the guys at the top of the list. And Absolutely. So you know, you're going through that process, and I think he's a guy that you know, you listen to the some of the stories that are, or he may tell his own story sometimes or on his interviews. I think he's a guy that just was trying to. He was trying to be a Chris Nyland, and and when by what I mean by saying that, like because Knuckles used to fight everybody. I, mm-hmm. I think they were two different type of fighters, but because Knuckles was a sort of a grappler and, and Cordic was a guy that would stand back and throw him. But Knuckles played all the time. So he was a guy that was playing on the third line, on the checking line. He was a guy that was playing on different lines. And I think that's what John Cordic wanted to get to. And and I and I, I understand, and I think every tough guy in the, that's ever played in the National Hockey League 
you know, except for like, like Bob Probert, where he got to play, uh, you know, he played on a regular basis till near the end, but he was playing mm-hmm. quite a bit as mm-hmm. far as ice time. And I think, you know, back in our days, when you got to that fourth line and you were a tough guy, you sort of didn't get to see the ice uh, as much as, you know, uh, you wanted to. So I think that was part of the, you know, that with John, he was such a, you know, I think he was such a hero when he was in Montreal. They, they won a Stanley Cup, I believe, when he's there. Mm-hmm. So he's on, he's in that little thing, but I believe that he always wanted more. And, and I, and the probably, that's probably where he gets himself into trouble a little bit because, you know, I've been down that path where you, uh, you, you feel like you're giving everything and you're just not getting ahead. And sometimes, and you either just sit there and be comfortable with what you're doing. I guess you could ride it out maybe, which I should have done a little bit better. But I, I, I was a guy that, you know, when you play in the National Hockey League or you're trying to get to the National Hockey League through minors when you're young and then you get into juniors and you've always been able to play the game. And now you're sort of getting to a level where, you, you know, you're only getting to play one shift a period maybe. or, or right. so, and, then, and, that, and that drains on you. And, 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 and I understand the whole thing, rightfully so, because that's why I always had the respect for a tough guy back in that time because you didn't know how much you were going to play you might not even you might you might be lucky to get one shift a game it depends on what's going on and then that one shift you're called on to go do something and so the mental toughness of it all was that was the battle of that whole process so uh you know going back to what you're saying about john uh, but that's what i refer when i when Corey goes through that process now i don't get into the, the the other stuff that he was involved with but as far as everything else that goes on with him and, well, that's what you know, that's what I wanted to actually ask you is is it's it's very well documented how John dealt with it and everybody you know John had demons I don't want to go in that direction but how did you deal with that kind of stress because in reality you had the same thing you scored thirty five goals in junior you've worked your way up you're kind of bouncing around and you know every night you're getting you know we're still covering the early part of the season but eventually you're going almost every other night you're fighting how are you dealing with it yeah no I wasn't and being young. When you first get there, when you're young, it's it's a different animal because your your goal growing up your whole life, mm-hmm. uh, my whole this is me anyway was to get to the National Hockey League. I, sure, I've sat and I've watched. I get hockey. We only got hockey games once a week on Saturday nights until the playoffs come, and then it was all the time. But so you're 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 watching your idols grow up on TV. You're living. I, I come from a town of 400 people at that time. And I'm sitting in a ho- I'm at a hockey rink every day of the week. I, I pretty well live there. Uh, you know, school's really not an option. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but it wasn't. Sure. You know, I always wanted to be at the rink. And so you've lived your whole life. You've played your whole life. You know, you're growing up in small towns. And, it, you know, I, people probably don't believe it. But, you know, there, I would go and there was only eight kids on the team. And I'm scoring 10 goals a game. Right. You, you're an actual good player. So then once you get to your 17, 18 years old, now fighting becomes a part of junior hockey and, you know, fighting it, it's, it's sort of, it, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy story to tell because fighting got me to the national hockey league, but fighting kept me in a certain role in the national hockey league. Mm-hmm. And the guys that did it long, like the, the Dave Brown, you know, uh, mm-hmm. he plays a lot of years. Uh, Ty, Ty plays a lot, but Ty gets to play a little bit in Toronto and he starts to get more ice time. But you know, there's a lot of guys that Stu Grimson, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Twist that are playing, that are tough guys, but they're only getting one or two shifts a game, and you could just never get you could never get to that point. And that's that's the era we played in. It was you were, you had a role and you did your role, or you know you didn't stay there. That was your option. So you either did or you didn't. And I think that's where I, I battled with it quite a bit because I, I always played getting to that point. I even when I get to the minors, I play all the time. But I just I couldn't. Once you're in the NHL, you just you weren't really. And Brian Sutter was pretty good to me because, you know, I was getting at least three shifts a period probably with him. 
But then I, there's a period I go through with him with me and Kelly Chase are playing on the same team and, right, and, and we're alternating go. games. And, right. You know, you're alternating games all the damn time. So you're sort of screwed there too. So it's, it's just, you need to be more mentally tough than people can imagine. You know, you, it's a thrill of getting there, but staying there was one hell of a job to do as a, in that role. Moving forward, because I know we've got a little bit of a timeline. We'll go into November where you play the Chicago Blackhawks. Steve Larmer scores two goals in this game, gets a 700th uh, NHL point. Rain Presley added a pair of goals. You fought Bob McGill. This was the fifth straight loss, though, for the Quebec Nordiques. On a team that's consistently losing like this, how hard is it to go to the locker room and go to the rink every day? No, it's... uh... Again, and I, I tried to I tried to refer to it as my in my role it was different because I was still I was still Absolutely. going through the process of uh, I, I, my my job was pretty easy because the role that I was playing or the role I had to play I could always find that person back in those days because they there were right. two or three guys on the team so I was uh, I could find out what and you know and I was happy to do it at that point in time because I was still making my way through it but you're you're correct uh, as a team you're sitting there and. No matter what you're doing, you're, you're you know you you got these players like like even Fogarty. He was a uh, mm-hmm. the numbers he put up were comparable to Bobby Orrin Jr. You know, though, and then Dennis Potvin. I believe he, I think he comes close to breaking them, or if he did, he might have even broke them. He was the next and, Bobby Orr, and the pre- no matter what he did, it wasn't going to be good enough. Bottom line. Yeah, exactly. So we we went through, and you know, you got all the talent, but it was just. They had all these young kids that were coming up, and uh, when I say young kids, you know, I'm obviously I'm young too, but like Joe and they're they're and they're just starting out. So there was no, there was not a, a, a real veteran present. Like there wasn't 15 other guys on the team to help these young guys walk their way. So Joe Sackick, Nolan, suddenly they had to learn it as they went along, and that's probably what made their longevity and their careers even better because they started out and they sort of had to be the top, the top line players right from the get go because. The other ones weren't there. Following a game against Chicago, you continue the fisticuffs frenzy tour and go on to fight Nick Kiprios when you play Washington, Shane Churla in Minnesota, and Dale Kushner, all in a span of four days. I've never talked to anybody that's been in three fights in four days. How the hell does your body <laughs> handle that? <laughs> well, I, I, you know what? I, but I, when I was in Quebec, it was. Uh, there was a period in time there where I, I, my confidence level in the fighting department was at, at its all-time high because I'd come through a period when I started. I, I'd fought Dave Brown uh, twice. I, I did really well in one fight, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, not so well in the second fight. But, but my, but I'm fighting the the guys that are at the top of the league, and so my confidence going in, uh, and I was, and lo and behold, I, I felt it was a part of my game that I still had to do. You know, it was a role that I was playing. So if I would go out and do that, maybe that would give us. Because back in the day, it did give some teams a spark to get to that point. Right. And so you try to go out and fight whoever you had to fight. Not only make it a name for yourself, but give up some respect so someone wasn't going to sit there and run around after your players. So you know, there was a role you were playing, and I loved doing it. I was young. I loved doing it, and you know, I was still. I was getting ice time at that point in time, though. It wasn't. I wasn't sitting on the bench. Bergie played me, and that's why I, I wasn't sitting on the bench all the time. And then, then you know, that's where probably with, when I get to Chambers, I sort of started to sit on the bench, and that's where I started to, you know, I didn't like it as much. November 19th is a matchup between the cross-province rivals. You're playing the Montreal Canadiens in Montreal. I've always heard from here talking to other players that Montreal is kind of the pride and joy of the National Hockey League as far as the province of Quebec. Playing for the Nordiques, did you always feel a step below the Nordiques as far as treatment and attention you got from the league? Yeah, um, 
I don't know. You see, but I grew up knowing that though, because I I just right. They know, didn't even have the Nordics the back then. Yeah, you were. That was a WHA yeah. team. Yeah. You know, and Montreal Canadiens were the Montreal Canadiens, and just to get to the Montreal Canadiens and play in the form, you know, and to skate out on the ice, and uh, even for not for warmups but for pregame skate, you're in Montreal, and and to, just to look around, and you know, it was you're in awe because that was that's what I'd watched on TV my whole life, and so I'm sitting in the forum, just I, I couldn't care less who they thought they were. You know, they could do whatever they want because they and they were still good at that time. You know, Montreal. It, you know, they'd always, every decade, they win a Stanley Cup for, right. uh, you know, I don't know how long. And so they, the, you know, the, the history there, the, they had the players, like when I was there, Van Carbono still there, Ludwig, you know, guys, Scrudland, these guys that have won the Cup, Patrick Waugh. So it's not like they were a bad team. So they're still a good the hockey club. You know, you, you, you were just happy to be there. So the, I, I couldn't care less if uh, we were the, the stepsister to the Montreal Canadiens. Cause and that's fine. Cause, I, I, but I got to play in the Montreal Forum, so I, I'd already so, yeah. one of my dreams right there. You know, still works out for you. December second issue, the yeah. Calgary Herald comes out, and there's an interesting note in there. It says that the management of the Nordiques is going to start requiring all players to stay at hotels on the weekends, even for home games. Was that true or is that false? That, I think that, no, that's false because I never did that. So uh, that never, not when I was there, that never happened. Um, yeah, because the only time that I've ever done that was when I when playoff time come and uh, when I was in St. Louis, we. Back in the day, instead of staying at home, they would run you down to a hotel for the night, and you know, so you get some sleep in that. But that was I in Quebec, where we weren't in the playoffs to start with. But they they never did that when I was there. I don't know if they did it after or not, but not when I was there. Marcella Boo and Pierre Paget are starting to look towards the upcoming draft, and there's a young kid named Eric Lindros coming out, and there's rumors that the team is starting to tank a little bit per management in order to get themselves in the number one spot. That never happened when I was there either. That, that wouldn't have happened, but I don't think... I could uh, never imagine a pro no. team tanking at that level no, I, I, for any reason. I, I just I just don't see it. No, and, and that that there that scenario that that went through and uh, all that, like I when, when Lindros gets drafted there, I, I've, I've already left Yeah, you were already gone. When he gets drafted there. But that whole process, I... I I've, I was always a guy that believed that he should have went and played there just because that's what I believed in. Now, when they make the trade or whatever and they put pieces together that eventually help them get to where they got to, you know, there's a, there's a different theory to the story because they go to Colorado and win some Stanley Cups with some of those players. But I don't even know if I'd have been on the team at that point in time when that was going on because when they drafted Lindros, I wouldn't have been there the year before. I was, uh, I'd already been gone. Yeah, it was just something in the papers that they were saying they was tanking, and I and I honestly yeah. believe it was I, just that I, something in the papers. I'd have a hard, I'd have a hard time. People, not, you know, the, you're not going to try to tell me that Joe Sackey and them were going to fold their tent. They're going obviously they're going to go out there and play. I don't believe that would have happened. So if they were going to tank. Because they, you know, their record for the for three years or four years is pretty dismal. You know, it, it, they go through a rough period of time there, and I was there for a couple of those years. And it, you know, it's 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 there's a lot of the, the people that were going through that roster that you know the, they had guys that are calling up and all kinds of stuff. So I don't think there would be any tanking going on because they would be trying to find a way to win it. You know, that, that was relief for a little bit because the, the losing wears on you, man. It wears on you. Oh, I'm sure. And at this point, I think you had gone about 14 games with no yeah. wins. And it wasn't long after that that trade rumors start. And one of the teams that actually comes up is the New York Rangers. They're reportedly very interested in you. Do you recall ever hearing about the Rangers having showing some interest in you? I, I was, there was a part, and I, now this is just hearsay, but 
I when when I get traded to the St. Louis part of the when I through this process, I uh, at one point when I'd went and fought Craig Carter uh, in New Jersey. Yep. That sort of that sort of put my name on the map. Uh, I, I'd already been fighting lots of guys, but Crowder had gone through the process of. You know, he was beating some guys up pretty bad. And uh, Philadelphia, he was sort of beating all those guys up. And then he does good against Proby. And so he, he goes through a period where he's, he's at the top of the mountain. And I went in there and I, I have a really good fight against him. So my name sort of gets thrown to the top. And I, the Rangers and I, I believe uh, Pittsburgh and St. Louis were three of the ones that uh, were thrown out to the St. That's what I heard. It, it could not be true. It could be true. I don't know. When when something like that comes up, and and obviously it's on your mind, it probably concerns you because you're kind of wondering, hey, where am I going to be waking up next week? Do you have somebody you can talk to, or is that something as an NHL player you have to keep to yourself and just deal with? Well, it was funny because when it was in Quebec, the, the newspaper, the, I, uh, I don't know if, it, if I say the Gazette, I could be wrong. That could be Montreal. There, but there's a paper there. But in, and when we were playing there at that time, because the team was doing so bad, be, like, every morning the guys that were there that spoke English and that would be asking the the guys that spoke French and, and English that you know we'd have the newspaper because there was like four or five pages on you all the time, and they would read the papers. And so you know it was it was part of a joking system that we'd go through where who's up for trade now or who's on the trade block now because. You know, there there was so much stuff floating around that sure. guys were going everywhere. You know, can like Michelle Goulet and Peter Stashney, these guys are hanging around there and they're getting traded. And so you know, you knew that once when Michelle Goulet and Peter Stashney for what all they meant to the Quebec Nordiques, and now their names are getting thrown on the trade block. Pretty well, anyone besides yeah. like Joe Sakic and these younger guys are pretty well anyone could go down the road now. February 4th, it finally happens. You're traded to the St. Louis Blues for Herb Ragland and two young minor leaguers, Tony Twist and Randy Rimshaw. Tell me, man, let's let's walk through that final 24 hours and, and going into Quebec. Where were you when you heard? I mean, what went through your head? I was actually, it was kind of weird because some stuff had gone on in Quebec. And I, so I, I got sent down to the minors. Yep. I was So I'm sitting down in the minors and Robbie Fatorik was actually the coach down in the minors. So I went down to the minors for, uh, I was on a two-week period, they, went, they sent me down. And so when I went down to the minors, I got down with Robbie, and Robbie, you know, he, Robbie, Robbie liked me. He liked, uh, Robbie always liked a uh, tough guy on his team, and he always played him. And so I was there with Robbie, and, and I was playing, I think I had like six goals and six assists, I believe, and in, in six games or something like that. And we were playing against Sherbrooke, and that, I remember I was in Sherbrooke, and the Quebec Nordic staff come down and they were watching all of us because it was a big rivalry. That was like the Quebec-Montreal mm-hmm. rivalry in the minors. Um, so we were playing the farm teams. And they come down after the game. They wanted me to call me back up, and I, and I refused to go. I said, no, oh, wow. Uh, when I, you know, I, I just didn't want to go back up to it because was, there was a problem between me and Dave Chambers, and, and Pierre Paget knew about it. And so we sat there, and I think I was in Fredericton. Or, no, we are in Sherbrooke maybe. I, I don't know, one of the two, but... Yeah, because I didn't play for it. It was in Sherbrooke. So we're in Sherbrooke, and we end up going back home to Halifax. And my agent had called me, and I told him, I said, I didn't want to be part of it. I said, I wanted to be traded. And then they, Paget told me, he said, I got to, uh, to come back up, and they'll give me two weeks, and they'll try to trade me. So I said, then I would do it. And uh, I think the first game was actually in Montreal when I got called back up. You go ahead and you get traded. What goes, I mean, you, you obviously will have some emotions. It sounds like you actually really wanted out of town, but what was your first two or three days like in St. Louis? Well, see the, the, the also, so the, the thing about St. Louis is though, and I, and I'll, and I'll be flat honest with you here. Mm-hmm. 
the St. the St. Louis Blues really are not even on my radar. I, I don't even really know what's. It, it's kind of weird because you know Brett Hall's going getting ready to go to his part where he's on the you know he scores his eighty six goals that year when I get traded there. But you know we we know what Brett Hall's doing, but we don't really know anything about the Blues because. Back in the day, when you're in the Adams division, you're playing Montreal all the time. Right. You're playing Boston all the time. You're playing right. Buffalo all the time at Hartford. So I don't even you don't even really know what's going on on the other side of the, the ball game here. So I, I knew when finally the trade was made, and so I'm uh, St. Louis was the thing. And I talked to Brian Sutter on the phone. And he uh, he made me feel good about the situation coming there. Uh, you know, so I, I was happy with that. And then once you start looking into it, you notice well, oh, they're they're uh, one of the top two teams in the league. So you're going to have a chance maybe to chase down a Stanley Cup here. So you've gone from a last-place team to a team that's in second place now. So that was a good thing, and I, I knew nothing about St. Louis. Didn't have any. I knew that the uh, St. Louis Blues were possibly coming to Saskatoon at one point in time. That's about the <laughs> that only was thing about I knew it. St. Louis Blues. <laughs> Where did you, know, you live so when, you, uh, when you got sent down there? Where were you living? So when I, when I got down there, uh, so Jeff Brown, who yep. uh, played at Quebec before, uh, and I, I was good friends with Brownie in Quebec when we played there, and so Brownie had already been traded to St. Louis. And so when I come to town, Brownie had uh, had a house and he wasn't married at the point in time. So uh, Brownie, uh, uh, he offered for me to stay there. So I, I went and stayed with Brownie uh, the first year I was in St. Louis. That must have been an interesting household. Two uh, outgoing bachelors running around St. Louis. No comments. Well, yeah, he, he was there. And then uh, actually Kelly Chase uh, gets called up out of the minors at some point in time and uh, he he was living with us, and Pat Jablonski was a, he was a backup goaltender at some point. He comes in there when Vinny Urando gets traded, and you know he's living there too. So we had we had a whole crew of guys going there at one time. What was the cleaning bill for the ha- housekeeper with the four of you guys there? <laughs> no, we, we we kept our own. Our, we you know we were uh, we were born uh, me and Chaser anyway here from Saskatchewan, so you know we had our duties all our life. So yeah, Mama Mama didn't let us get away with having a dirty house, so. You know, we weren't going to be doing that stuff. Your first game with the St. Louis Blues is against the Buffalo Sabres and ends up being a great win for the Blues. It's a two, You guys are down 2 nothing. Cliff Ronning scores, and then there's a pair of goals by Brett Hall. Brian Sutter praises mm-hmm. you, though, for the hard play during the game, and you're quoted after the game saying how impressed you were with the fight and desire to win amongst the guys on the team. Let's talk about how different this Blues team was from the environment that you had just come from in the Nordiques. There were veterans on this team. You had... Oh my gosh, God, I don't even know where to start when I look at the list of veterans that were on that team. I know Brett Hall was still young, um, but Harold Snepitz was in his last year. I know you had a, a, a veteran goaltender as well. The name escapes me. Let's talk about the differences between the two locker rooms. Well, for, you know, you, so you're going to go into that locker room and, and your, your captain, first and foremost, is Scotty Stevens. So he's, he's the guy that's at the top of the ladder. So, you, you know, you got Scotty there, you got Harold Snepps, you're, uh, you know, you got all those years. But then you got you got guys like Bob Bass and Dave Lowry and uh, Richie Sutter who were they were called the Green Bray line at that point in time mm-hmm. and you know they always played against the the top the top lines of other teams that was their role and but the and then you had Rick Mahar and Ron Wilson that were down there you know they sort of they were the penalty killers of your hockey club and they they sort of centered the fourth line and then uh, Rod Brindamore where he was a rookie at that point in time and Roddy was you know he was no nonsense kind of guy. So it was just it was just a it was a mentality of everyone had a role to play. You had Holly sitting there with uh, Otsi, and so you're basically that part of the year when you know I get there halfway through the year, you're you're almost, you're already starting out a goal lead because Holly's always got he's going to score a goal a game and it, 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 he's on that pace. So you you know you're up one nothing, but that was the, that's the first time probably in the National Hockey League. Mm-hmm. So 
I've been in Quebec for two and a half years, and now I've gone from are we ever going to win to are we ever going to lose? Right. Because that, that was the mentality we had at that point. It was, you know, it was like what I described earlier to like the Boston Bruins where we had a lot of guys on the team that, you know, that they were a bunch of grinders. Uh, they were going to work their ass off for you. And you also had now Brett Hall and Adam Oates who were going to put up uh, the, all the goals and the assists for you because they just, that was their talent. And, and Scotty Stevens back on the on the blue line, and Jeff Brown was there at the time, and Paul Cavallini, the Cavallini brothers were yep. there. So, you know, you, you you had a roster that was to ready to that was hunting down the Stanley Cup, and it was just you know it was just a we knew we knew going into the games that we were going to win them. That that was the mentality as opposed to going into and thinking they're going to lose. In the St. Louis Post Dispatch, it stated that you've been brought in to protect Brett Hall. Was this ever explicitly said to you, or was it just implied that you knew that's why you were there? Yeah, no, and it, yeah, it wasn't to protect Brett Hall. People can say that, but mm-hmm. Brett, Brett Hall, you know, realistically, if uh, Brett Hall was always playing against, he wasn't playing against the Stu Grimsons and uh, the guy, you know. So very fair. Brett Hall was there, but it, you know, if if he was playing against the checking line, we we you know us guys would go talk to guys if they if they were doing stuff to Brett, but. Brett could handle, you know, he was, he was playing against capable players. So, he, you know, he was, it wasn't like guys were going out there and going to goon him up. Like he had to play tough minutes against the top, top defensive players in the league. So, you know, he was battling, getting hooked all the time and doing that stuff, but there wasn't guys, guys were running them around. And if they did, of course we would be there to answer that call for sure. Brett Hall and Adam Oates had recently been put together and Oates had assisted on Hall's last 11 goals. This pair had to be one of the best pairs in hockey of all time. Do you think there was, you know, anyone better that you saw on a team that you played with? As far as like, uh, so you have, and I played with Adam, uh, I also continue to go down to play with him in Boston when I was there, but to watch this man pass the puck, to watch him see the ice, it just, when you, at the time it was going on, I, I, I don't think you really realized what was going on. You know, after you're out of the game and you look back and see what the man was capable of doing, uh, it was just, he, you know, it, the, the chemistry that him and Brett had were it was phenomenal because Brett just had Brett had to be open for half a second and the puck was there. And it was just and, yeah. And 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 just the, to see, to watch, to watch Brett Hall shoot the puck, to watch him, you know, everyone says that he, you know, he, when he was in St. Louis, he went through a period when I think Keeney comes in there and that he sort of he got on him that Brett didn't work. You know, he he was a hardworking guy when I watched him. You know, it's just. He worked his ass off, and he, it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like he was going out floating by the red line and waiting for someone to pass him the puck. You know, he, he he played his part too. So it was that's that's the way I looked at it anyway. And but they were so smart. They to watch players and how they talked because I never played with Gretzky or these other superstars. But to talk mm-hmm. about how Ozi and Holly, how these uh, superstar players, how they see the ice, probably how they see something happening like three or four steps ahead of everything. You know that that's there. That, that's a, that's a true statement because these guys could they they knew it was going to happen before a lot of other people knew it was going to happen, and that and that's just a fact. On February twenty fifth, and you get your first taste of a St. Louis versus Chicago rivalry, which is a pretty well known one in hockey. You end up fighting Mike Peluso that game. Meanwhile, Jeremy Roenick scores two goals to lift the Hawks over the Blues. I know that you ended up becoming close friends with with Mister Roenick. How was he to play against, though? This, I, I was always, even to play against, it was to watch this guy, you know, when when you go in to play a team and 
his name is coming up to the ladders or, 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 the, or the ranks, this is who you need to watch. You know, when you go through the process, this is who you need to watch. So J, JR was that player. You had to watch him. But he, it wasn't, he wasn't a Brett Hall or an Adam Ola. He would run around and he would lay guys out. Right. He would throw, throw the big hits. JR, his game, that's how it evolved. You know, he, he, that's how he got involved. He, he, he liked the attention. JR always wanted the attention on him. So he had all the moves, but, he, but you know what? God, he'd give up his body a lot of the time. And you, you just had to have all the respect in the world to watch this man play the game. Moving into March, the Blues play the Detroit Red Wings, and you're all over this game. You end up in the first period fighting Dennis Vial, and then five minutes later fighting Bob Probert. Darren, you seem like a nice guy, but do you have a death wish? I mean, do you recall this game at all? Yeah, you know, you know what the the, the funny the so I get traded to St. Louis, and this is like I said back to the Troy Crowder fight, and so any anyone in their right mind knows that I'm gonna that Bob Prober's probably gonna want to see where I'm at because it's basically his league at that point in time. He was the toughest guy in the league at that time, so. Right. You know, Proby's going to say, well, this guy beat up Crowder, who I, you know, I went all these battles and people said this and that. So, you know, he's going to find me. I just didn't. My my biggest problem was Dennis Vial got in the way of my biggest problem. <laughs> you know, he was, a, he was a young kid coming out. So at the start of the, you know, the first period, he come my way. So uh, obviously we, he wanted to fight. So I wasn't going to say no. So that was my job. So I fought Dennis and it was a, a long fight with him. About 45 seconds, so I come in the penalty box, and I was I was tired, and I'm coming out of the penalty box, and my next shift I'm lining up against Bob Probert, and I'm, and I was a young kid, I didn't give a damn, it, you know, I was a, that was my job to do, so I I was gonna I fought him because uh, it wasn't like I never fought twice in a game before, so I fought him, and uh, but he was just too much for me at that point in time. In mid March, the St. Louis Blues travel to the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, and you end up fighting Nick Kiprios for a second time that season. What's up with Nick? What's the beef? Well, I, you know, I, he caught me by a little bit of surprise back in the day when I was in Quebec. So I, uh, and I'm a person when you when you do the job I do, I will promise you, any guy that does the job I do, they have a great memory, and I, I always had a great memory. And so I, uh, Kelly Chase was playing that game, and I told Chaser there was a shift up, and Chaser was going on the ice, and uh, he was out there, and I told Chaser I said, "Come to the bench as soon as you can, please." And uh, Chaser come, and I went out there, and I went to get Mr. Kiprios back for a little earlier process that we went through. <laughs> I'm a pretty easygoing person, but if someone, uh, and not that he did nothing bad to me, don't get me wrong, right. that's not what it was, but it was, uh, it was, uh, I got, I got a bit of a surprise on, uh, when I fought him the first time and I, I wasn't going to get surprised again. So, uh, and that didn't happen the second time. Getting ready to finish out the season. The blues are on a six game winning streak. After you and Rich Sutter get goals, Brett Hall also puts up number 85 in a game against Toronto. How exciting was it to be part of that goal scoring streak that Brett Hall was on? Yeah, it, it was amazing. It was just, it was absolutely amazing to watch what the, the what went on that year. And like I said, we we went in, I think went into LA one time and he scored four goals. And the, I think he had like eight goals in a period of three games or something like that. It was just everything the man was doing was. And the best thing of this whole thing, so he goes to eighty six, which shows you the type of player that he was, but. I don't believe he scores an empty net goal in any of those 86 goals. You are 100% and, correct. You are 100% and, correct. And that that is just amazing. And it wasn't – the funny thing about when you're doing it with Holly, there, there were games where he was on in the last minute of the game, and he would get the puck, and he was capable of shooting that puck into the net, and he would pass it off. And he just – he wasn't going to put it into an empty net, and he never did. And 
I, it was just, but just to watch, it, it was a, it was, it was a magical season because everything he did, uh, it, it just turned to gold. It just, it was a, you know, it, it was a lot of hard work. I don't care if anyone says that he was uh, all offense. He didn't protect. He took care of his defenses on. It wasn't like he was a, he wasn't slacking there at all. Cause you know, but when you're that great offensively, him and Ochi, the other team's always worried about you scoring. So you're never in the defensive zone anyway, half the time, you know? It's funny you mentioned that because goal 86, they were talking about him in the papers in the St. Louis Times Dispatch. They were, ah, let me think of the word. They were, um, they were basically wondering why he wouldn't take that final shot with a minute left and an empty net goal. And he even said, I'm not going to score on an empty net goal. I'm not doing it. I'm just, yeah. I'm not going to do it. No. I can't, still can't get over how loaded this team was. It, it was one of the top teams. And of course you guys go to the playoffs. We could save that for another episode yeah. before we kind of sign off. Everybody has a Brett Hall story. I got to ask, do you have a Brett Hall story that you can share? You know, the, the only thing that I, the only one where I do with Brett is, uh, and it involves him and Ochi at the same time. And it's it just, so when we went into, we went into Chicago on St. Patrick's Day because that's the big famous uh, one that they always show down here in St. Louis because mm-hmm. there's a big line brawl and that's where I introduced myself to Jeremy for the you know I knock one of his teeth out and I, I get Jeremy in a line brawl and uh, became there, friends the first team. time yeah became friends yeah. the first time yeah exactly <laughs> so you know we were playing in the old stadium uh, you know that place was uh, the best sports stadium that I've ever played in my life and it was just so loud and. Uh, we had first place and second place teams in the league were battling for first place that night. So all the emotions are flying and this, so this line ball starts out. So, you know, me, Kelly Chase, Glenn Featherstone, I think Harold Sneps was on the ice at the time. Um, we all get kicked out of the game. And so then you got Scotty Stevens. Uh, he ends up fighting Dave Manson also. So he ends up going out of the game. So all the tough guys are gone out of the game and, the Chicago Blackhawks still have Stu Grimson and Peluso sitting there. So I, as soon as that fight happened, the next time Holly and Ochi go out in the ice, well, who do you think enters out into the ice? So oh boy, that's the, so they put them two guys out there. Well, that's when uh, Scotty and Dave Madsen actually fought. So after the first period, the chaser, you know, we're down there and we're uh, we're pretty pumped up. A couple of kids from Saskatchewan, two small towns, we just sat and in Chicago stadium and caused all this ruckus and beat, you know, JR got beat up. Michelle Goulet got beat up. And so we were feeling pretty on top of all Oti and Holly when they come down to the locker room in the team period, they, they weren't, they weren't viewing it the same way we were. Viewing it. So they, <laughs> they, were, they were, they were pretty pissed off at us two guys for, you know, causing all this ruckus. Cause then they had to still go play the game. So it, it wasn't, but that's, you know, I, I, that's all I get into that. That's my part of it with Holly and, uh, I, I had some good times with his dad. Um, when Holly had a, a bar here in town. We, I sat one night and drank a lot of wine with his dad, and who I think is a marvelous man. And it was just, uh, just, just hear the stories of that. Uh, so that you know, it, it was just, a, it's just an interesting family of how popular they are and how down to earth they are. Oh, that's great. That's great, Darren. Tell you what, tell everybody what you're up to now and where people can find you. Well, I, I live in, uh, I live in Granite City, Illinois. Um, I've lived here for twenty some years now. I've uh, had two kids. Uh, my one boy's uh, 14, and my daughter's uh, seven, 17. Uh, my wife was she was a Rams cheerleader one time when uh, oh, wow. when the Rams actually when the Rams actually went and won the Super Bowl. She was part of the Rams organization uh, cheerleading organization. So uh, she got a ring before I got her. I was going to say, does she ever so. hold hold the ring over you? <laughs> yeah, they got they got the ring there. So, but I, yeah, I live in Grand City. My kids are 14, and I coach a travel team with him, and then I coach a high school team that he's on. So I. I have hockey going every night right now, and uh, I work for the city here in Granite City. That's where my job has been here for the last six years. So 
Can you tell everyone where they can find your podcast? It's a Blues NHL podcast. I do it with Jamie Rivers, and it's it's a blast. It's it's a Blues NHL podcast. But we uh, we go on and uh, we do it once a week usually when the season's going on. And usually it's usually about the Blues. We talk about what they're doing because Jamie's got some connections with the Blues. But lately, in the last like three or four shows, Jamie, you know, he gets wandering here, and we get talking on other topics. So it gets pretty interesting sometimes. But it's a uh, it's just nice to go in there and talk about hockey with another hockey player that I, I never knew Jamie when I was playing. That I knew of him. I just never knew. We sort of, our, our path didn't cross. So his kids are a year older than mine. And I ran into him at the rink because we were doing uh, coaching and we talked and we, you know, we just become good buddies. Well, Darren, this was great. I really appreciate you taking some time out. Love to do another episode with you. I know I took you for a long time tonight. So down the road, if you ever have some free time, I'd love to do something with you playing in Chicago or Boston. Okay. For, for sure, no problem. Whenever you want, I'm. Uh, you know, let me know, and uh, no, not a problem at all. I absolutely loved talking to Darren Kimball. Sometimes you do these interviews, and you just talk to a guy that you really could listen to for hours. And I could have listened to Darren talk for hours about playing in the National Hockey League. I thought his stories were excellent. Loved hearing about Adam Boats. Loved hearing about Brett Hall, the two of them together. Loved hearing about him having to be a fighter and things along those lines and how he kind of dealt with it. So really, really appreciate him coming by. Definitely want to have him come to come back on sometime, talk about his time with the Bruins, the Blackhawks. Also talk about those playoff series and kind of what went wrong in St. Louis after the 90-91 season. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. I've got a ton of research to do this weekend for some more upcoming interviews. Once again, thanks for tuning in. Please share on social media. Please tell a friend. Really trying to spread the word about the podcast. We'll catch you on Monday at 8 a.m. Take care.